Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have John Epperson. Hey, everybody. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week, we have two guests. We have Bob Quillen. Hey, guys. And we have Karthik Gaikwad. Hey, folks. What's going on? This episode is sponsored by Cloud66. I have a Rails application, and I was looking for a flexible product that takes care of deployment and gives full control of my application so I can focus on developing my code. I came across Cloud66 for Rails, which deploys your Rails application onto any cloud or server. At first, I thought it's like Capistrano, but then I realized it's way more than just deployment and gets you to scale servers, replicate and backup databases, protect your servers with firewalls, and much more. It acts as your in-house DevOps team to build, deploy, and maintain your Rails applications. It's really developer-friendly, and no wonder that companies like Bearmetrics, Glossies, CareerBuilder, Discovery Channel, and many development agencies and I are using Cloud66. You can try Cloud66 Rails for free and get $100 free credits with the code rubyrogues-19. That's rubyrogues-19 at cloud66.com. So uh, you're both from Oracle. Do you want to just explain what you do there, each of you? Sure. Yeah, I'll jump on in. So this is Bob. I'm uh, responsible for the Oracle Cloud developer relations and advocacy efforts that go on and working with developers out in the field, uh, doing meetups and conferences you know, focus a lot on cloud native and what's going on in the, uh, the cloud space and just helping developers learn what Oracle Cloud has to offer, what's happened on the open source side and how we can engage with them. So, And uh, I actually started at Oracle as a developer and I uh, was on the managed, um, basically doing a bunch of stuff around containers uh, on Oracle Cloud. And I was on the managed Kubernetes team. And then once we, uh, you know, released our product, I started asking a lot of uh, questions about how customers were you know, using the product and like different things around it. And then uh, they were like, hey, you like talking to folks. So maybe you should join developer relations. And, you know, like a year later, here I am. Nice. And we had you on a year ago talking about Oracle. We'll put a link in the show notes so people can go check that one out too. Yep. That was a lot of fun. We talked about uh, Oracle Cloud and, you know, some of the things that we do from Ruby perspective on OCI, et cetera. And so it was a lot of fun. Yeah, this time we're talking about Kafka. And we talked about Kafka, what, middle of last year? It was funny because we got this lined up and I'm like, I don't, uh, it didn't really stick because I, I was like, yeah, I kind of vaguely remember what Kafka is. So do you want to just give us kind of the elevator pitch about Kafka? And uh, I'll put a link to that episode in the show notes as well. I can kind of jump into you know what we've announced and what we've been working on. So Oracle Cloud has a streaming service. We've... Uh, added in Kafka compatibility. And, you know, basically Kafka is the leading distributed streaming platform. It's an open source Apache project. Uh, really enables, you know, cloud developers to build, publish, and subscribe models for streams of records. And you can store streams, you can process streams, and it's kind of the de facto way to deal with real-time, large amounts of messaging information that are coming into, you know, web applications. People are using it for messaging, data ingestion, a lot of uh, obviously financial services have been using this for a long time to do, you know, ticker and financial information processing in real time. So anytime you have large amounts of information in the stream processing required, you want to process that in real time and deal with all the backend stuff with that. Kafka has become the standard to do that. And this is a extension of the Oracle Cloud streaming service. So we have a streaming service and now that has full Kafka compatibility, which opens up to this massive ecosystem of folks who are using Kafka to build out applications. 
So when you say streaming, you're talking about event streaming, not like video streaming. Yeah, it's it's primarily data streaming. And so it's, yeah, uh, messages, data coming in. You can imagine with, especially now with Edge and IoT stuff going on, it's been a an explosive area of, of work to get to process all this information and find ways to parse out the information, deal with ingestion and also processing and analysis and storing. So, yeah, one thing that's just in general in the world today, like, you know, back when I started my career, it was more about you get the information, you store it into a database, and then you make decisions based on that. There was like some on a delta, it could be like days or weeks, sometimes before you realize, hey, there's something weird going on. Let's change things around. But like today, it's it's so much more real time, right? So like, you know, I just came back from a trip and, you know, like I used a Lyft to go to and from the airport. Like it's in real time where you like request request a ride and then that message gets sent out to, you know, behind the scenes, it's like a Kafka-based system where you kind of get matched with a certain driver and then that driver shows up where you're standing and takes you to the airport or wherever you're kind of going. So decisions that people used to take a long time to make or systems that used to take a long time to make have become like really, really small. So that's enabled just applications and just industries in general do things in a lot faster manner. And that's kind of where like Kafka fits in, where you have like, you know, producer consumer kind of model where producers are the ones like, you know, streaming the data into the actual Kafka service or, uh, you know, Kafka in general, and then consumers kind of like pulling event logs and messages out of that uh, and reading from there. It's interesting. I mean, we're talking about Kafka and, you know, streaming data in and, you know, maybe streaming messages across. I mean, Rubyists are somewhat familiar with the idea of like a message queue or, you know, so you're using something like, I mean, we have Rescue and Sidekick, you know, which are based on Redis. Sorry, my brain is just running slow today. Anyway, so it'll push a message on, right? And then there's a consumer on the other end. And it sounds like Kafka kind of does the same thing, except on a much uh, larger scale. Yeah, it's a, uh, and that's funny because, like, when I was when I was initially getting into this ecosystem, I was like, what's what's the difference between these two things? But there, it's just a more like robust system where you know, in, in Java, for example, we have like a messaging service over there, but Kafka is a more like robust system that has you know, it has like Zookeeper behind the scenes that you know, helps you store all your data, et cetera. And it, you end up having like more APIs rather than just for producers and consumers. There's also like connector APIs and streaming APIs and whatnot uh, that also fit into that whole ecosystem. And so it's gone from, it's kind of like the Kubernetes world where Kubernetes was like this one platform that you used to kind of like use to help, you know, build uh, distributed applications. But now there's like a, this whole like ecosystem around it where, it's kind of exploded into like different things. Can you talk a little bit more about like, there's a number of messaging queue competitors out there, right? Like there's the old rabbit and queue that's been around since basically forever. There's uh, Amazon SQS, which is their own internal. That one to me seems like the most, the one that I know of that's this most similar to Kafka. I mean, we're kind of talking about like sidekick and rescue and things, which are almost kind of like rolling your own message queue system right yeah. on top of some sort of infrastructure. I was just kind of curious, can you give a little bit more detail about like what makes Kafka stick out or whatever? If no, <laughs> okay too. <laughs> well, how I follow the evolution of the uh, the message queue, message broker, kind of the market and the technology, RabbitMQ, 
early on was kind of the general purpose message broker of choice. And that was, you know, a while back as we started moving into greater volumes, something that's much more cloud native, require much more durability, much more parallel parallelization and the ability to, it has a much more robust semantic model too of, you know, producers, connectors, processors, consumers are brought, very API driven. And it's slowly the, what happens in open source, uh, the market speaks and the adoption began to vote and, you know, democratization took over and, and Kafka picked up uh, this, this massive, you know, adoption cycle, which kind of coincided with, I think, the scale where RabbitMQ had a lot of application, maybe on the enterprise application side. And, and it was, you know, it kind of fit the model of SOA and enterprise application integration early on. Where we went to, you know, cloud scale they were looking for something that's much robust, something that could scale out very quickly, kind of fit the model um, that you see now in web scale architectures. Is kind of a, a perfectly timed platform to take advantage of everything, all the scalability and extensibility that the cloud provides you and to take in much more higher, higher scale, higher volumes of data and do it in a way that is now extensible across something you run on-prem, so we can run in any different cloud itself. There's managed services that support it. And there's a whole kind of ecosystem that's evolved around. And so it's kind of a natural progression that you see in the, I think, in, in technology. And Kubernetes is a good example of kind of how, you know, a technology similar to Kafka comes in, builds a community, and then adoption kind of explodes as people start building on top of it. And the open source model begins to basically you know, take shape. And I think that's been the beauty of it too, is that you see these ecosystems evolve where, you know, there's vendors, there's applications, there's developers, and they all kind of work with each other to build this up. And it's something that happens from the bottom up and not necessarily always from the top down. So. Yeah. And I was going to add like, from like a simple queue service or like from a messaging service, et cetera, you know, those are like for smaller kind of applications that, you're not worried about from like a throughput perspective or like a, you know, uh, distributed perspective or whatever, like a queue service would work, you know, pretty well for a lot of those applications. But once you start going, going into like a high throughput use case where like you might be using it in, you know, transactional or like a, a bank kind of scenario or whatever, that's kind of where the power of Kafka actually starts to show its wealth of, wealth of knowledge. Bob touched on it, but one of the reasons like LinkedIn actually ended up building Kafka was they were like, well, we don't necessarily want to start with a managed service up front, like what, what should we build from like a, it has to scale, we need for it to work on like different machines. So how do we make it distributed and like, you know, high performance and all of those things. So that's kind of the origin story for Kafka. I think one of the reasons it's really popular is because it, you know, started as uh, an open source tool or an open source platform people wanted to use. And then they were like, hey, this is actually like really good to be able to do, you know, streaming decisions basically. So that's kind of, you know, all of those things kind of play into, play into the ecosystem. Right. One thing that I'm, I'm seeing here, you know, to kind of talk through this a little bit, and maybe we can just talk through a use case or two here to give people an idea of what the capabilities are. But so I've set up a couple of times a service to basically track podcast downloads, right? And so essentially what happens is somebody hits some endpoint that I have, and then it basically tracks the hit and then redirects them to wherever the media is stored. And what happens is 
that when it tracks it, it just drops it into a queue. And so I've used Rescue and, and Sidekick for that. But I've thought about building out a service that more people could use. And with that kind of level of traffic, you know, I don't want to have to worry about 100 workers subscribed to that queue and things like that. And I could also see where I could throw the events across something like Kafka and have stuff on the other end that basically says, okay, well, I'm subscribed to this event and all I do is build this one report. And then I could have another kind of worker that is subscribed to that same event, but they build a different kind of report and things like that. And so you could get specialized in the way that we do with like microservices, Mm -hmm. except it's essentially uh, subscribers on this giant bus. And so it just watches everything that comes across, handles everything that needs to be handled. And at the end of the day, I have the output that I want. Is that the kind of thing that we're looking at with Kafka? Or is there a better use case or a better solution for that kind of a thing? No, I think I think you've you've hit on it pretty well. You know, it is used in like large kind of scales. So let's say like log processing, for example, right? So you can actually like use Kafka as a, as a system to kind of like ingest all of your log logging data, mm-hmm. et cetera. And so you know, if you have like a simple thing with not a lot of data kind of flowing through, then perhaps using like a simple queue service or you know RabbitMQ or whatever uh, might serve pretty well because you're not worried about that thing going down because it's you know being being hit with a lot of data uh, up front. But when you start trying to you know make real time decisions or you just have a large amount of data kind of flowing into it, that's where you know the power of Kafka really starts to show. And the thing that's interesting to me is it sounds like there's a lot of different subcomponents of that. So Kafka has a bunch of different APIs that people start to like build you know different uh, pieces of things on. So you know I, I haven't actually used. Kafka Storm or like some of the other like newer tools, you know, inside of Kafka, but it seems like you can kind of build on top of what the platform is up front. So it allows you to do a lot more things than, uh, you know, just a simple message queue. Right. So what, what are those other things that you can do beyond the message queue? You know, taking that traffic example or maybe the log aggregation example, right? What else can you do with it that we're, we're not thinking of because we're kind of locked into, well, I've done this with a queue before, so. Yeah, I mean, you can build like streams if you want. So let's say, um, you know, in your log aggregation example, like you're trying to look for specific patterns or whatever, and you're trying to build a stream from that, you can do that with Kafka. There's also, I don't really know what the Connect API does with it, but you can kind of like, if you wanted to take that data and, you know, put it somewhere else, for example, Sometimes people end up taking specific log information, like security-related things, and you know, storing that off somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Uh, it gives you the ability to, like, you know, put that uh, put that into like a, a DB or something like that, where you can, you know, do some kind of post-processing or whatever you whatever you need. So just different kind of capabilities with it. Right. It yeah, reminds they- a little bit too of observables in JavaScript, and so you know, you create a stream of data. And then it subscribes and, you know, maybe it drops certain ones or it transforms certain ones, you know, similar to what we've done with Ruby's enumerable module, you know, and so you kind of tag it together, except in this case, it's, you know, you take a stream and you transform it and then somebody else subscribes to that stream and mm-hmm. transforms it again, you know, and eventually you wind up either consuming it all on the, the other end or putting it in a database or feeding it to, a, I could see this being fed into like an AI or machine learning setup, or all kinds of things like that. Yeah, it gives you APIs so that you can 
do whatever you kind of want to slice and dice, however you want to slice and dice your data and brings a lot more possibilities into into the picture that you couldn't have done before. So uh, I think the only thing that I was kind of thinking of or whatever that that hasn't sort of been talked about, uh, to me, that it's always looked like Kafka is kind of like the full-blown pub sub type structure. So when you, you have, you know, in various programming languages, right, you you generally have some sort of like listening kind of thing, right? Where you just add event listeners to something and you have like global pub sub and then you you can get more nuanced, right? Where you have channels and things like this. And that was kind of, to me, I kind of uh, have always seen that as being kind of an allegorical thing where Kafka is just a, how do you call it? Just a more well-featured and well-rounded pub sub type thing. It definitely is like one thing versus like, you know, a bunch of different things that we have either in programming languages or, you know, products. So at what point do you decide? Because I mean, like Sidekick and Rescue are really simple. And if you're managing a couple of workers, it's really easy to get going with. At what point am I going to be looking at my system and going, you know... Sidekick really isn't the best way to go here anymore. I may want to kick it up to a RabbitMQ or a Kafka. At what point am I going to look at that and start thinking that this is a better solution? Hmm. One definitely con- definite consideration I would have on this would be like take a look at how much data you have coming in and out. So if you end up having a lot of requests per second, or if you have just a lot of data that you're trying to tackle and save off uh, initially in your queue. And if it's taking you a long time to like pop the queue, whatever, and you can't scale your number of consumers behind the scenes, then you know it might make sense to go into something a little bit more heavyweight. I'm a big fan of you know when you build applications, you build it with the simplest possible way. So like use the simplest queue that you have to kind of listen and then uh, you know pop items off the queue and then kind of like you know keep going from there. And so I don't I don't necessarily think that should consider like streaming as your number one use case if let's mm-hmm. say you only get like a few requests an hour. You're like, right. you know, keep that simple. But if you do have, you know, uh, a lot of data coming in and uh, on the producer side, there's like your IoT systems, right? So if you're, um, they're sending a lot of data to you and if you're not able to capture that, so like let's say your drone sends you information and then your ingest API starts, you know, throwing 401s because it can actually process all the information sent to you, then it's probably like, okay, well, probably need a robust queue. And if the queue itself is not distributed or whatever, and you start seeing issues with that, then you know you probably want to move to something something like like Kafka or something like uh, you know our uh, streaming service, etc. Gotcha. Just like you know, in the container world, if you're just building mm-hmm. one container, you just use your simple container thing. Yeah. Versus, you don't need Kubernetes on like the very first day. Right. You don't need Kubernetes or Docker Swarm or anything. You just spin it up, spin it down. Right. Exactly. I'm kind of curious. I mean, how much work is it to set up Kafka? Let's say I'm not quite ready to to try out, you know, the streaming service at Oracle, or maybe maybe I just want to, you know, put it on my own local machine and kind of fiddle with it for a little bit. Is it pretty easy to get started with? Or, you know, does it take some doing to get it set up? I don't think it's too bad. I mean, you do have to kind of like set up your, you know, you, Kafka behind the scenes uses like a Zookeeper instance to kind of store, store state. So you're, you know, that's Zookeeper is like the database behind the scene. Uh-huh. And then you also have like the thing that stores your topics, et cetera. 
and then you have your uh, producers and then you also need to like set up your consumers. So at least you need like, you know, those four, those four items in there. I think what happens a lot is when folks actually start using Kafka, they get really excited by it, by, you know, the, the, the power of it. And then, you know, different teams end up setting their own, setting up their own Kafka clusters. And then like all of a sudden, especially in a large enterprise, you end up having like a lot of different clusters with a lot of different teams managing, you know, different Kafka clusters. And that's what kind of pushes people to think about, well, like, do we really want a large number of teams in different organizations kind of managing clusters versus should we consider having a centralized team that manages all, you know, Kafka clusters and create like a behind the scenes, like a Kafka team uh, or a Kafka operations team, or should we just end up using like a, a service for it that, you know, handles all the maintenance and um, operational kind of things for the actual maintenance of the cluster. So those are like two options and two patterns that I've seen a lot in industry and people pick and choose between those two. I think it's never the issue with like, Hey, I have one, I have an issue with one specific thing, but it's more of a, we have a lot of these, like, what do we do now? Yeah. And I think we always talk about sometimes the easy button is the best way to go and the managed service, which provides it for you and Oracle cloud, everyone else has, a, you know, free elements to it. So I think finding a way to use the managed service as a way to leapfrog or almost as a cheat into learning about streaming. That way you don't have to set it up yourself and there's no kind of backend requirement. I think that's, you know, run through the uh, the labs, you know, mm-hmm. try different things like that too. So those are, you know, for us, a lot of it is just, I learn a lot about new services by just going to the cloud and trying it out and, letting the, the cloud set it up for me and use the managed service and just kind of follow the directions to get something that the basic element up and running, then from there expand out. That's my kind of my learning model typically. So I think yeah, also the, the more annoying part is the when you want to make a change to multiple clusters, right? So let's say a lot of these, you know, have properties. Um, and you know, like in the Ruby world, you know, when you have an application and you're running it in production, and let's say like your database thing or whatever, uh, username, password for your database changes and you have to change the connection string, you typically end up restarting the service. In dev, you, we typically have something that, you know, does the auto restart for us. But Kafka is kind of the same way where you have to like manually go and like if your consumer endpoint or something changes, then you, you have to go do a whole bunch of manual restarts everywhere. But when you end up using like managed service, you don't have to worry about that as much. Yeah. As a Ruby developer, you've probably used Redis for queuing and caching. But if you're like me, you've never completely understood it. You just followed the tutorial to set it up and then hoped it'd stay up. Now that I'm building my own services for other people, I realize that you and I often don't have the desire or time to run an ops or DevOps team or do it yourself. Plus, since you're not a Redis expert, you're not exactly sure how to know what it's doing. That's why I love Redis Green. No setup. It runs on any AWS region I want, so I can run it near me. And the tooling is amazing. I have to tell you about this feature, actually. It actually maps the memory you're using and tells you where all the memory is allocated. So this makes it really easy to see what's going on in your Redis setup. It also runs on AWS, so it scales easily and can alert you when it hits certain thresholds in performance or capacity. Sorry for going all fanboy on you, but I love this tool. Here's the thing. If you don't want to do ops or are already on Heroku or something, then use Redis Green for the rest. It's simple yet powerful. Check them out at redisgreen.net. Well, the other thing that I see is that if I want to get familiar with the Kafka API, then yeah, setting up a service on something like Oracle Cloud or 
somewhere else that you know has a Kafka offer, offering. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because then I can just get in and, and play with it, right? The, the operational side of things is probably not my focus as a developer. And the other thing is, is a lot of the billing is usually metered. And so if I'm not pushing a ton of data through it, it's not going to cost me very much to experiment with it. Yep, yeah. that's also true. So since we're kind of on this note, is Oracle's Kafka R offering super vanilla? Are you guys offering something extra on top of that? What you get with Oracle Cloud is a you know open source driven service with all the you know the API elements and the components that Karth has been talking about. But it's running on top of a you know a secure, scalable cloud that's um, highly performant and geographically distributed. I think when we look at all the elements that make up Oracle Cloud and compare it to other clouds too, running the streaming service on top of that then gives you access to you know, our autonomous database if you're looking to you know, push stuff into the database itself, access to other APIs and other services that are on there, all our Kubernetes and container services too. So I think you get the, the benefit of open source at a highly competitive price for running on a highly secure, high availability cloud. It's such, you know, Gen 2, so you're running on a, a cloud that's that's new and has all the uh, bare metal and virtual machine instances and the GPUs that you'd expect to see and something that was built over the last three to five years. So. Yeah, and long-term, you know, a, lo- a lot of folks wanted to see how to connect up Kafka, you know, Kafka APIs to our database, uh, et cetera, because there were a lot of, like, DBAs wanting to, like, play around with, like, streaming ideas, et cetera. So, you know, it allows you to do that. We also have like different components in, or you know, different services in Oracle Cloud, and so eventually, at some point in time, you know, there'll be like different connectors between, you know, all of our services, et cetera, to like the streaming service. So if you wanted to run like functions or whatever, you know, against your Kafka service or against the data coming in through your ingest pipeline in your streaming service, you know, that'll that'll be an option. So it kind of sounds like the main things are it's mostly vanilla, but you're gaining some benefits by sort of location, right? You're close to all the other cloud things, right? You're just out there in the cloud, you're gaining all the natural benefits of the cloud and you're gaining integrations and things. Yeah, and and I say that the beauty of vanilla is that it's, that's what open source provides you is that it's standard. And if you built it on-prem, running it up in our cloud or running in another cloud, that's the benefit and kind of the promise of open source. So in that case, I think vanilla is, is good. Everyone loves vanilla. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no problem. Yeah, vanilla is a flavor. <laughs> nice. It's One important thing- to remember, like, there's always, like, ways you can kind of go about and do, like, specific kind of things. But, like, why go away from, like, a standard that, you know, people really like and it's tried and true from an API perspective and from, like, a Kafka perspective, et cetera. So part of the reason we have that is, like, we had a lot of requests for, like, doing something like streaming and made a lot of sense to use, like, an open source platform that we're compatible with. Yeah. One other thing that I'm wondering about with Kafka is just securing it. So, you know, if I put Kafka up in the cloud, even if I'm hosting it myself, you know, I don't want other people to be able to push data into it and send uh, messages through it. I, you know, I want to keep it to myself or keep it to my company. Is there the concept of a user or a, a client or something like that, that that allows you to lock it down? Yeah, I think it's pretty much like all the similar kind of stuff. Like you can have, you know, ACL settings for your Kafka clusters. You can use certs or whatever you want in terms of securing cluster from people trying to put like unwanted messages or whatever in there. So those are things that, you know, on the producer side of things, you would end up adding 
you know, whether you're using a cert or some kind of, you know, some kind of way to username, password or whatever for being able to access a cluster. Typically on the consumer side, you also want that kind of secured because you don't really want anyone kind of reading that data. But that's more of from the security standpoint, if a consumer, like consumers are more like inside of your network than, you know, probably sitting like from some of the cloud or something like that. But you want to be able to protect whatever data you have, like in your stream upfront. So you end up having like the same kind of pattern, whether it's certs or username, passwords or whatever kind of thing you want to do, you end up having it on both fronts. Yeah, it makes sense. And you have all the, the access control and you know, security access that's built into, into Oracle Cloud itself with our compartments and our, our, our user groups, et cetera. The data is encrypted, both at rest and in motion. One thing that you'll find within the Oracle Cloud in particular is that based upon the, the model and the, and the patterns that, we, that enterprise customers expect, there's a, a level up of security and there's a high security by default that goes for all the encryption and the, um, the access to it. So just the fact that the system's laying on top of Oracle Cloud infrastructure, you're benefiting from all that compartmentalization and controls that are built into um, Oracle Cloud itself. Have either of you played with Karafka at all? I have not. What is that? So it's a framework for Kafka written in Ruby. And we talked to, oh, what's his name? When we did the episode last year, it was with Mache, I think is how you say his name. Mache Mensfeld. Mensfeld, okay. So he builds the Kafka driver in Ruby and then also the Karafka framework. And it looks like it just streams information out of your app you know, onto Kafka. And so I was just wondering if you had done things with that. I have not. Uh, I'm actually looking at it. It looks really neat. Yeah, thanks for providing the the link, Charles, in, in the notes. It does look really neat where, you know, it can brings like Ruby applications, like makes them like a first-class citizen into Kafka. Because I, I know a lot of people like that use, you know, Java with Kafka or like Java kind of applications. Shouldn't be a surprise because I work at Oracle and there's a lot of Java folks around. Right. But it's always good to like have more ecosystem, oh, what's it called? Like more languages actually use the thing. Because I know a lot of folks using using Go and, you know, publishing uh, data to Kafka and Go behind the scenes to also consume it. This is pretty neat. Do you know if there's a lot of traction with it? I don't. I don't know if there's a lot of traction in general with Kafka, with Ruby and Ruby on Rails at this point. So I have actually worked at a place that implemented Kafka or whatever, in a Ruby app or whatever. Now they had a microservices kind of architecture going on and they had a lot of messages to pass in between the apps and that ended up being the justification for it because eventually eventually it was it was just difficult to I mean we were using sidekick right as the queues yeah but eventually just there were too many messages really is what it came down to so i mean it exists i've seen it in the wild but yeah i haven't seen a lot of it for sure definitely not tons of articles on it and that is, I think, like the problem that you kind of hit the nail on the head when you said, you know, we were using, you know, uh, Sidekick and worked work great for the longest time. And then we just had like a lot of messages that we had to like coordinate between applications. And that's where, you know, people end up moving to Kafka or whatever Kafka's implementation is in the, in, in the specific language. And that is very true. Like that's a, that's a pattern that, you know, I've seen in, in the Java world and in the Go world. Where it's like, yeah, we we you know we use like a simple queue thing, and then it's like, well, no, this is not going to work because either messages are out of order, 
or there's just too many messages coming in, et cetera. And then you end up, you know, going to going to the way it should be done and doing a little bit of re-architecture. Yep. Makes sense. I yeah, I'd be really curious if anyone out there is using Kafka, I'd like to see it. Like I said, I'm also building this service for podcasters and I would love to build in the kind of uh tracking for podcasts that we could get. The other thing is, is I've also thought about building a relay service for podcast numbers that podcast players essentially would connect to. So then it would, you know, it would send a stream of, okay, they, they got to one minute, they got to two minutes, they got to three minutes, they paused at 12 minutes, 45 seconds or whatever, and give those numbers to podcasters. And then just say, look, of all the ones that we tracked, it looks like people tended to drop off the most, you know, around 15 minutes in or whatever. And that allows podcasters to essentially get feedback on their content and work from a place where then they can, you know, okay, well, it looks like on that episode, we went off on this tangent and that's where we lost people or whatever. That sounds like a great product idea. Yeah. And it'd be really interesting to see how, because then, you know, we could just scale up to whatever we need with Kafka and we can build those kinds of reports for podcasters just on the fly with a microservice architecture that doesn't have HTTP endpoints except for where it's coming in initially. And then the rest of it all just gets handled because it just works through a workflow, a data flow in Kafka. Right. You know, sometimes you end up realizing, you know what, actually, regardless of what kind of podcast it is, like people don't don't listen after like 45 minutes or whatever, or like there's a big drop off at that point. So you end up saying like, creating a standard where it's like, yeah, it's, it's better to have like shorter podcasts or whatever. That kind of thing happened with uh, with videos, right? Where before yeah. everybody used to, you know, have, you know, half an hour long or an hour long videos. And today I think it's the standard has become more, not standard, but like the recommendations more like have many short videos as opposed to yeah. one long video. Yeah, it would be interesting to see how that plays out with podcasts too. Because currently the state of the numbers in podcasts basically boil down to downloads, right? We don't have any play data and it'd be nice to do that. The issue that essentially comes with that is that in order to build that relay out and make it useful, you'd have to get a certain amount of data. And so you'd either have to create an extremely popular podcast playing app or you'd have to get the other ones on board. And the biggest one is Apple and I don't think they'll play ball. So it has some other market issues, but it'd be interesting to see where those numbers come down. So it would always be nice if you're like, I know it's not technically not possible, but you had your audio and your audio could send off like HTTP requests every now and then, then you can kind of like make those like producers of messages. And then you'd be like, you can pretty much tell like, oh yeah, you know what? At this point in time, like this person really liked it. And then like we never got to this other, other portion of it. Yep. I feel like there's definitely some security implications there. Yes, there are. (laughs) That was just like a crazy idea where I was like, oh, I mean, oh, that'd be cool. But yeah. Yeah. Well, there are security implications whenever you're sending behavioral data down. And since most people listen on their phones, I mean, I'd like to know where they're listening at. But when it boils down to it, you know, that's location data that's that can be sensitive even if you're not giving any other kind of identifying information. And tracking people's listening habits across multiple podcasts would also be nice. But again, then I could actually trace a user's movement as they listen to shows. So 
anyway, it, it's interesting and we'd have to figure out where the boundaries are. But yeah, it's something that I've wished I had and something that I've thought of building. So sounds really um, cool. So kind of getting uh, maybe back onto Oracle and Kafka, have you guys built up a framework of tools or anything? Are you just providing Kafka? Are there libraries out there to make it easier? Tutorials? Yeah, there's a set of uh, labs, tutorials that are available and lots of uh, samples that are coming out for not only our streaming service, but on Kafka streaming, Kafka connectors. This opened up, I would say, the floodgate, the mini floodgates on, on folks writing blogs. And I think we're starting to see a lot of interest. You know, we have a, also a lot of work coming up on the data science and big data side. So processing the data once it comes in is also super interesting to folks. Um, and you start getting into AI and ML, what you do with the data once you get it. So just getting the data in, step one at, at high volume is being able to get reliable access to it, durable, secure access to it, and then actually processing it. So the uh, there's a lot of super cool use cases. And then you're seeing a, a lot more happening now with people bringing in, we have examples with you know, SaaS apps with folks doing, people trying to build Tesla cars, the competitors, you know, so electronic car stuff smart devices, healthcare, petroleum, all those you know, almost classic apps that have been streaming now, the AI ML side coming into it. I think that's the, uh, where we're seeing use cases pop up. There's a, you know, getting the data in, getting a process, and then getting it analyzed on the back end, uh, being able to store it and, and then make do some really quick analysis and do um, recommendations on top of that. All that's unlocking, we're seeing, you know, Startup applications there, but also you know classic enterprise applications too. So that's that's what we start seeing the most interest. But as you would expect with five G and Edge taking off, you know, over the next couple of years, the tidal wave might be breaking open pretty soon once that data starts flowing into. So yeah, and if you're like a developer, if you're a Ruby dev, what I would envision is you probably just go get the Ruby SDK for Oracle Cloud and just kind of mm-hmm. start like if you're using the streaming service, for example, just play with the streaming APIs that we have from a Ruby point of view. If you start seeing like weird things or whatever, you know, feel free to let us know, uh, file a bug, you know, all of that stuff is out in GitHub. So, uh, you know, this should be pretty straightforward. We also support, you know, uh, Java, Python, Go. We have a CLI uh, as well. So sometimes you have like DevOps folks kind of using the Oracle Cloud CLI because they're just trying to, you know, understand how things work from a, you know, bash perspective or whatever. Or, there's also folks that end up using the REST API. But I think typical use case, folks end up using the SDK in their language and start using it from there. I assume that I could probably also get my endpoint URL right and just hook it up using the already existing libraries and things out there as well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. I'm kind of digging this and now I want to go play with it. Not that I have time. <laughs> <laughs> so... I, I did want to throw a thing in there because we were talking earlier about, uh, we vaguely mentioned Docker and Kubernetes. And because I have had experience before, I did want to say that for people that are trying to get this kind of stuff working in your development environment, Kafka does seem to be pretty pretty heavy on IO, which is difficult for your Docker container to handle. So just a, a word of caution. It's not that you can't do it. You can totally do it. You're just going to, you know, Use a lot of CPU. Now, are you saying this if you're running Kafka on the Docker container? So I know that, and I've said this before, like back when 
I had that Docker episode, right? That you can run your database in Docker and most people don't have apps that are doing IO, you know, enough to like cause a problem and you like never notice that it's an issue. But the Kafka thing, it does seem to be doing a lot more IO than your database ends up doing. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. The most common example of people using Kafka and Docker is like number one, as you said, like the first time folks that kind of play with it. But I've also heard of people when there's a new version or a new consumer uh, or something has changed with what they already have. They try out the Dockerized version of that first and then they're like, okay, everything seems to still be working. All right, now we'll go and like do an upgrade. It's a common pattern. We see that even with like databases and stuff too, where if you announce a new database, there'll typically be, be folks that will go, you know, install it in a container, make sure it's still compatible with all the APIs and data and all that stuff still okay. And then they'll go ahead and do the upgrade. Yep. Yeah, this looks really great. I'm I'm definitely wanting to play with this. So can I find a problem to fit your tool? Yeah, something like that. <laughs> to be perfectly honest, I have another project that there might be a fit for this on. Funny enough, it would also be listening data, but it would be within a, a closed system. So anyway, anything else before we go to picks? No, I think we've uh, covered it all. So yeah, if people want to find you guys online, where do they go? I'm assuming you're on Twitter and GitHub and stuff. I'm at Bob Quillen, and that's uh, that's right on Twitter. And you can find us on on GitHub. Karthik, uh, I'll let you give your your logistics yeah. there. I am uh, Iteration One on Twitter. I T E R A T I O N, and then number one. Back in the day, I thought it was really cool because I was like, I love Scrum, so I'll use like Iteration One. But I don't know. Maybe I should just made it Karthik. <laughs> I'm on LinkedIn and then uh, yeah, also on GitHub as well. And definitely hit up the hit oracle.com and try our, our free trial and our free tiers and lots of stuff to experiment with and lots of you know new toys and they're coming out every day. So good deal. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood, and I just launched my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there. The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. All right. Well, let's go ahead and uh, do some picks. John, do you want to start us with picks? I am happy to get us started. So first, I'm going to be doing a, a Scotch recommendation. So as previously noted, I have a personal favorite and I went back to look to see if I'd actually recommended it and I had not. So there's a brand out there called Aberlour, and they make this particular scotch. They call it the Abenod or whatever. So, so kind of like what I recommended last time. If you're like really into rye whiskeys and things, this has like that cast strength kind of flavor and things to it. But it's really well known and has been for a long time for it's just its spiciness. It's a lot more than just spicy. It, it's kind of I don't know. I it's like a fruity kind of taste. Anyway, it's it's very different. I mean, all scotches are really different. That's actually why I like them. And I know I use that word all the time. But uh, it's really well known for its spice. Um, it's it, like aged in sherry casks. So it has, you know, kind of that, you know, sherry nutty kind of thing going on. And then, yeah, it's kind of fruity like other Avalors are. It's probably one of my favorites. It's like super expensive right now. Like I have a hard time getting it for like less than 120, even though it's like regularly been like 60 for forever. So, but it's awesome. I wanted to put that in there. And the other thing, I watched The Witcher recently on Netflix. 
And I'm a huge, like, I've always been a big reader my whole life. And it, it com- originally comes from a book series, though there's some games. And the games are actually how I was introduced to the Witcher story. But it's just an awesome story. And if you kind of like always wanted like a really cool like fantasy kind of storyline, I think The Witcher is kind of like that candy of that type of storytelling. It's really good. It makes you feel, I don't know, it just makes you feel like you're in there. It's what I've wanted from a lot of different series that I've never gotten. I enjoyed it. Even though it's people have commented that it's a little confusing and I think maybe you have to look up stuff, but I didn't have a problem with it. Cool. All right. I'm going to jump in with a couple of picks. I think my first pick is going to be Discord. It seems like more and more people are creating Discord servers for various things that I'm involved in. I actually use Discord to communicate with the team at devchat.tv that produces the podcasts. So yeah, I really, really like Discord and really love what it offers. So I'm going to pick Discord. And then I've also been doing a lot of sponsorship outreach lately. And I've been using HubSpot to manage a lot of that stuff. So I'm going to pick that one too. Those are kind of the the things that I've been spending most of my time in lately. Bob, do you have some picks for us? Well, you you, you opened up the the bourbon and the whiskey side of things. So I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll, plug, I'll plug a couple of favorites here from Texas. We're based in Austin. Uh, um, but Balcones Distillery, uh, which is up in Waco, which they have a lot of really very interesting takes on whiskey and bourbon and et cetera. And um I'm working on their Texas rye right now, which is kind of very nice chocolatey rye. And um, there's also a new distillery that opened up kind of south of here called Malam, M-I-L-A-M in green. And it's um, several folks who've opened it, actually women who've opened it, who've come in and do come, um, kind of uh, whiskey uh, based upon mixing various kinds of whiskeys together and blending. So it's a very interesting you know, take on bourbons and whiskeys too. Those are, those are two um, interesting ones in Texas. My book of the, of 2019, which I, I've been recommending to everyone I could talk to is called The Overstory. And it was, it's a great work of fiction. I thought it's called Overstory and it's, it, it's got an eco element to it. And, uh, but it's some really great stories built into it, but if you have a chance to look up Overstory. I, I'd recommend that one too. So that's one of my favorite books of the year. Awesome. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and uh, wrap this one up. Thank you both for coming and talking through this with us. You bet. Thank you. Good to be here. Like I said, we'll wrap this up. We'll have another one next week. And in the meantime, max out, everybody. Thanks, Thanks, everybody. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.